You see, the more economically independent a man is, the easier it is for him to say to government, get out of my business. My business isn't your business. I have a roof over my head. I've, I've made what I've made by myself. This isn't your doing, and so I don't need your help. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, today on the program, we have someone who is uh, somewhat unique, a Christian libertarian economist, and he's an Albertan. Uh, so this should be a very, very interesting conversation uh, with a person who has actually started his own podcast and has been very active uh, in the public in educating the public about some of the, the threats domestic and international to our sovereignty and our prosperity and our overall well-being as, as humans uh, in this space and time in history. Uh, and so we're looking forward to having a conversation with him. Uh, his name is Tanner Knighty. Uh, before we introduce him properly, uh, as we always do, we're going to go to the aphorisms board. And uh, some of these have been chosen in his honor. The first one is from um, a very famous uh, evangelist, American evangelist, um, the late, great Billy Graham. And I, I, I'm quoting him because I've heard Tanner speak and he has sort of a bit of the Billy Graham in him. I think I've mentioned this to him. So the quote from Billy Graham is, is this, um, the greatest need in the world is the transformation of human nature. We need a new heart that will not have lust and greed and hate in it. We need a heart filled with love and peace and joy, and that is why Jesus came into the world. The second one is from an economist, um, uh, the late uh, Milton Friedman, former Nobel Prize winner, I believe in 1976. And he was, a, he was definitely a libertarian, uh, so somewhat of the same uh, ilk as our guest. And uh, Dr. Milton Friedman said many things, but he was quoted uh, famously as saying this, the great virtue of a free market system is that it does not care what color people are, does not care what their religion is. It only cares whether they can produce something you want to buy. It is the most effective system we have discovered to enable people who hate one another to deal with one another and help one another. The next one is from uh, a famous Christian philosopher uh, named uh, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote that to love means loving the unlovable, to forgive means pardoning the unpardonable, faith means believing the unbelievable, hope means hoping when everything seems hopeless. So, Tanner, welcome to Grey Matter. It's great to have you on the program. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So let's jump right into it. Uh, I'm very, very interested to know your thoughts on just in transition, as it's called, or just ah, transition. Yes. Um, now, I, I know you have, I expect you have many thoughts about this, but I'm, I'm particularly interested to know um, why you think this is happening and what it could mean for our province and for our country. Right. Well, my guess is you probably already know my thoughts on the matter of just transition, as I think as I think most other Albertans do. And actually, from what I can tell on social media and just 
conversing with individuals across the province and country, I would argue the vast majority of individuals uh, see this just transition policy the same way we do, which is destructive and dangerous and has the potential, no, has the guarantee to dramatically reduce the quality of life, both in our province and in the nation as a whole. So you have this government in Ottawa that has uh, signed on or, or pledged allegiance to this just transition that's been discussed in however many massive, you know, global organizations. And when you read what the what the plans and the ideals of the just transition policy are, as I know you have, and I'm sure your listeners have, you see just how um, dramatically different it would make life in Canada in a bad way. We have all of the blessings that we have today as a consequence of oil and gas, or many of the blessings we have today. You and I can talk on on uh, online like this because of oil and gas. We have lights in our homes because of oil and gas. We have heat when it's minus 40 out because of oil and gas. We have clothes that are nice and, and a variety because of oil and gas. We have all of these blessings as a consequence of oil and gas and our production and our harvest of oil and gas. And then you read the just transition policy. And when you see that they want to take that away, and that is the purpose of that policy, you begin to realize just how um, dangerous it is for our quality and way of life. Okay, so then what's the purpose of that? Why would a government who claims to serve its own people try to engage and pursue that sort of um, policy when it's so mm -hmm. clearly destructive? What's the purpose? Well, so one hypothesis I have, which I think is proving to be true based on the actions of our government, is that, okay, if you um, force a society into a position where they're desperate and they need help and life isn't what it was and um, their wealth has dramatically decreased, etc. What you do is you increase their dependency on something like the federal government. Mm -hmm. You see, the more economically independent a man is, the easier it is for him to say to government, get out of my business. My business mm -hmm. isn't your business. I have a roof over my head. I've, I've made what I've made by myself. This isn't your doing. And so I don't need your help. I don't need your checks. I don't need your, um, you know, uh, dependency. I don't, I don't need to be dependent on you. And as such, I can freely criticize you for what you are. If, on the other hand, a man is dependent on the federal government or any government for that matter, it makes it so much more difficult for him to freely articulate his thoughts, his true thoughts, about what he thinks regarding the state of his situation and the situation of the country. He might be or is scared that if he criticizes the government in a specific way, then maybe he'll lose a check or maybe he'll lose some form of income that otherwise he would have had, right? You don't right. bite the hand that feeds you. And so my, the, my hypothesis is that by pursuing these sorts of ideals, it's meant to bring Canadians and Albertans and other provinces under greater dependency and direction of the federal government to increase the overall power of the federal government over the nation. That's, that's a fascinating uh, take on a purely sort of economic level. Just taking that a little bit deeper, uh, I was recently reading a book by uh, Alex Epstein called mm -hmm. Fossil Future. I, I know you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. 
And um, one of the things that he talks about in his book is the the complete the obliviousness of the people who are pushing net zero mm. carbon uh, to all of the benefits of fossil fuels that you've talked about mm-hmm. over six thousand products that have essentially improved every aspect of human life over the past two hundred years. Um, but he makes a point there about this policy being fundamentally anti-human, mm-hmm. that it's not only going to um, you know, decrease or, or diminish uh, our ability to enjoy our lives, it's actually going to kill lives. It's going to cost lives and millions of them. And uh, do you think that there is a, uh, a spiritual aspect to this? In other words, that this, this anti-human agenda, that it goes, it goes deeper than economics? Oh, um, abs- oh yes. Absolutely. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because yes. I know oh, obviously yes. everything that you do and you talk about is is informed by your, your Christian faith and your beliefs. Right. So I'd be interested to know, sort of going a little bit deeper in the the economics and to hear from you on this uh, on this point. Right. Oh, I would totally agree that this is um, a battle which is fundamentally spiritual and it goes much deeper than economics one of the failures of economists (laughs) is that is that we tend to focus just on the economics and hold economics as um, the standard the ideal but it's really not it's important but there are things more foundational than economics itself and that includes morals and worship and so on so when i look at these politicians and eco-radicals pursuing these policies even though as I think Epstein's right, it it will, it is anti-human and it will produce human suffering and death to a demonstrable level. They're doing so because they worship climate change. They worship, or they or they worship um, the battle against climate change. They worship the climate itself. But when you look at how they've been reared, it actually makes it's really not surprising at all that they do so. You scrutinize government. You look at our politicians in government. In at any level, you look at the activists lobbying government, you look at individuals involved with government, and what you see is that a, a good deal of them are progressives. Right? They worship this religion of progressivism. And the further you think about it, the further you realize that it really makes sense then that they would worship climate change because they're progressives. The thing about climate change is that the climate's always changing. It's a changeless fact that the climate changes. And so what it allows the progressive to do is pursue that objective, that ideal, stopping climate change forever, even though they know that they'll never achieve their objective because the climate will never stop changing. They can spew these abstract thoughts and ideals and make it seem like they're pursuing a goal, something concrete, but really they're not. Right. Because, you know, and I know that the progressive can never really achieve anything at all, because Mm -hmm. if he does, suppose he achieves his objective, then he stops progressing and Mm -hmm. his entire ideology cannibalizes itself. So suppose I sponsored a marathon in the name of progressivism. I do so. And what would mean what it would mean is that you would have to continually move the finish line around the racetrack. You would never Mm -hmm. know where it is because it can never be in one fixed spot because you always have to be changing your ideals as the progressives do today but Mm -hmm. even if you knew where the finish line was going to be if you had progressive runners they would never cross the finish line Mm 
at right at the moment that they were about to, they would crash, not into the line, but into a paradox. Because if they did cross the line, the race would be over and they would have completed their goal or they would complete their goal and they would cease to progress towards the finish line. Their entire Mm -hmm. ideal or objective dies. Their entire worship of progressivism itself is defeated. And so what they have to do is they have to run a race forever without ever crossing the finish line. It's the exact same thing with climate change. Progressive politicians pursue stopping climate change because you can do it forever without ever actually stopping climate change and reaching your objective, your ideal that you preach to the society. And they know that, of course, the politicians know they never can um, Mm -hmm. achieve their ideal because if they do, of course, it means that all of their restrictions and um, power grabs are immediately rendered obsolete and unjustified. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that tool they use climate change to exercise power over the society is lost. And so instead they just pursue this ideal forever. Let's talk about this 15 minute city Mm. uh, and how it fits into this picture. Now there's talk of this being imposed in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. There seems to be some strong resistance, but what is this 15 minute city all about? We've been hearing that this is uh, coming to London. There's people in England who are very much in favor of this. But what, why the 15-minute city? How does it fit within the whole sort of uh, anti-human plan of, of the World Economic Forum, the people who want to control every aspect of our lives? Right, right. Well, when you research the 15-minute city ideal, one of the first things you'll notice is that Paris, who is um, operated by a supreme socialist, is one of the major, most prominent champions of the 15-minute city in the world. Now, no one really disagrees, rightfully so, that that cities aren't already 15-minute cities, in effect. Our contention is that if politicians, and of course, they are structuring their cities now also to actually create these true 15-minute cities, but at any rate, if our politicians continue to insinuate in our minds that these massive centers are just 15-minute cities, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Toronto, etc. If you say that all of those cities really are just 15-minute cities, 15-minute districts in this massive metropolitan, what you do as a politician is tell the individual, whether he knows it or not, that he never needs to leave his 15-minute jurisdiction. What I'm saying is, suppose that you were to lock down again. Suppose the nation were to lock down again and put restrictions on all. If the populace has already agreed and accepted that cities are really just 15-minute cities, then with what power or leverage will you or I or another individual living in the city be able to say, I want to leave my 15-minute district? Mm -hmm. Because what a politician will be able to say is, or a a counselor or whoever will be able to say is, well, you don't need to. You have all your amenities right here. We've designed the city to be a 15-minute city. You don't have to leave your jurisdiction because you have a hospital, you have a grocery store, you have a gas station, you have this and that. And there's really nothing for you outside of your little pocket. What you therefore can do is emulate what Australia did during the lockdowns, which was, as you remember, they locked their citizens within a five kilometer radius of their home for however Mm -hmm. long that was. And so you can do, you could just as easily do that again. If the citizens agree and accept 
that massive metropolitans are really just 15 minute cities. There'll be no need to leave your 15 minute district. There'll be no need to travel beyond it. There's no reason for that because all of your amenities are right here. And so what they can do is lock you down indefinitely without uh, having you, without giving you any justification other than Mm. your rights and freedoms for leaving. And when Mm. you try to argue for leaving on the grounds of rights and freedoms, the politician will simply reply, this isn't about rights and freedoms at all. It's about Mm -hmm. safety or security or health. And in that instance, your rights and freedoms are suspended for the good of the nation. And so your arguments are therefore illegitimate. So, Tanner, could it be, uh, putting on our tinfoil hats for a moment, because we're both Albertans, could could it be that the COVID-19 lockdowns, which were recently described by no less than the Fraser Institute, Douglas Allen report as the worst public policy in history. Could it be that these lockdowns were a trial run for something bigger in terms of restriction of liberty? And that is the never ending climate crisis. Right. Uh, so that we're, we're all, we all have to be, uh, live, live in fear of the sun monster, the very thing that provides life on this planet. And all we have to live in fear of the sun and we have to adjust all of our, um, everything that we do according to this. But my question is about that is, and my, my crawler question to that is, why does this always come down to restriction of liberty? Why is it so mm. essential that in order to save the planet, we have to sacrifice our liberty? Could you connect those dots for us? Right. That is an excellent question. Again, you have all of these individuals in power who are power hungry and want as much power as possible. The way to guarantee that is to centralize the power, i.e. be a socialist. You start controlling markets. You control the way people live. You start handing out how much, how many credits they can have for good X or how many coupons they can have for good Y. You decide to fix how much of good X the society is going to produce. And it practically turns you, the central planner, the politician, into an all-powerful omnicompetent entity and people have to bow to you they have to be beholden to you because if they don't then they're you know forced off their ration or who knows what might happen right. right but you look at the right. the societies of past and mm-hmm. and the socialist societies of past and that's what happened mm-hmm. so climate change because it's so abstract gives those politicians an ability to <laughs> exercise that sort of control without being challenged as they would be if they used a different avenue. Here's what I mean. We saw this with COVID too, with the lockdowns. Suppose that um, you or I or someone else tried to argue against the lockdowns. What was the response he received? Well, he was told that, one, you're not an immunologist. You're not a doctor. You don't have expertise in um, viruses or in vaccines and all of these things. And so... For you to try and argue against lockdowns is simply absurd because you have no idea about the science of the matter. You're not a scientist. You're not a doctor. You're, you don't have a clue about medicine. And so who are you to tell the experts how to run the province? So you see, if you and I argue against something on the grounds of morals and rights and freedoms, we're able to do so precisely because we're humans. And as human beings, we understand morals because it affects all of us and it's intrinsic in all of us. But science is different. And 
lockdowns, for example, are different because I'm not studied in immunology or I'm not studied in the history of virus or I'm not studied in the history of medicine or what might have you. And so what it enabled bureaucrats to do when we decided to argue against lockdowns is, as I mentioned, was say, this isn't about rights or freedoms at all. This is only about the science. This is only about health and safety. And as a consequence, your arguments have absolutely no bearing on the situation at hand. And so go back to your home and and wait until the experts tell you it's safe to leave. Now, you can do the same thing with climate. You can say you're not a climate scientist. You have no idea about the environment. You don't understand what a cumulonimbus cloud is. You don't know uh, what the proper temperature of the earth should be. And so who are you to tell us that, for example, climate lockdowns are immoral? You don't have a clue about safety. You don't know what the earth is going to be like in 10 years if we don't do this. You don't know all of these things because you're not a scientist. Mm -hmm. And so you have to let us take control because we're the scientists. We're the bureaucracy that that, um, we're the bureaucracy that always interacts with the experts. And so you have to give us more power. So I would argue the link then is because we're not climate scientists, because we're not environmentalists, Government will argue we don't have a right to talk about whether or not we should, for example, lock down in the name of climate change. Only those who are studied in environmentalism, who also tend to be radically left, will have the expertise to tell Mm -hmm. us we're free Mm -hmm. to leave our homes. And so we're going to have to then listen to government. It's just an avenue to give them more power. And who are we to question the estimable Greta Thunberg? Right, of course. All. Yes, We had um, Dr. Robert Malone on this program recently, and he described Canada as a World Economic Forum client state. Mm-hmm. I want to sort of extrapolate this out and take a broader view of just transition and what's happening in our country. And I know you have been involved with the Alberta Prosperity Project, and uh, you've been an active speaker at events and uh, things of that nature. Can you talk about uh, Just Transition and the World Economic Forum in the context of Alberta's struggle uh, to to restore its sovereignty within Confederation and, ah. and what the way forward is for, for the country as you see it? You know, when we talk about how the structure of Confederation is, um, puts Alberta at a disadvantage, that's, you know, that's not even to be angry about it. It's not to be riled up about. It's just a consequence of the way the system was set up. You have a the vast majority of Canadians live in the East, live in Ontario and Quebec and so on. Uh, you have a, um, as a consequence of that, you have a stronger distribution of politicians in the East who also have to serve the interests of the East in order to win elections. There's nothing inherently immoral about that. It's just a consequence of the way Confederation was constructed. Now, of course, because people are different and because regions are different, the objectives or the desires of the East often aren't, at least in the heavily populated centers, often aren't congruent with, say, the objectives of Alberta or Saskatchewan or those other provinces in the West. So you have this persistent dichotomy of, you know, East, I hate to say East versus West because it's really not, but it's really, it's, it's more accurate to say um, political <laughs> um, mugwumpery in Ottawa <laughs> versus, versus what you have here in, in the West. It's actually not people against people. It's more politicians against 
against a specific group of people. And I think for the politicians, that actually works to their advantage because the system is always kept in such a state of disarray that um, you have two or more people pulling in opposite directions. And so it means they go nowhere. So with APP, and I still believe this to be true, the desire is the way you save Canada is by being independent from the federal government. That, that I have a strong conviction about that because, for example, you look at scripture. When God for, you know, told Moses to go and rescue the Israelites, it wasn't go and rescue the Israelites and then again bow to Pharaoh. It was rescue the Israelites and leave. And people from Egypt who also recognized the wrongdoing of Pharaoh could go with you. That was clear, you know, but it wasn't stay in the situation you're in. It was prepare an exodus, mm -hmm. leave, and then other nations around you or other provinces will see what sort of freedom and prosperity and justice and morality, uh, you know, rises up as a consequence of that new freedom, of that new um, independence. And so mm -hmm. the idea is, okay, so if one province can show the rest of Canada, and for that matter, the rest of the world, what independence from the WEF, from the federal government, from uh, these neo-socialist policies looks like, then I would be fully confident that other provinces would follow as well. And then you could reconvene, and, and now that's further down the road, but you could reconvene and create something new, something much freer than what we have currently. That mm -hmm. was, that's the idea. I want to turn now to something we call the reading list, and we're going to feature um, your book, the one you published in 2020 mm -hmm. uh, on our list. It's called True Christianity. Well, do you want to tell us about it? All it really was or is, is an introductory treatise to my Christian faith, why I, mm -hmm. why I believe what I do, why I think it's logical. It was, it's meant to be just an introduction into Christianity as a whole. Of course, it's not mere Christianity. It's not any of those classics, but it's mm -hmm. something that huh, um, a newly graduated college student, a university student wrote after having navigated university and, and after having seen all that was taught in university, what individuals in the schools think, what ideologues think, in the in the universities and so on and so it just goes step by step you know starting from the creation then to the fall and the idea of the law you were talking about the ten commandments mm -hmm. and the problems of sin and and of course the resurrection and all of these things it just goes through the very basics the very fundamentals of christian faith tanner uh we're so grateful for this hour or so with you uh it's wonderful to to listen to you and and get your insight into the many things that are going on in our country and also to to be exposed to someone who is educated, but uh, but also as their education is informed by their faith, and that you profess that um, it's it really is uh, really is inspirational. So oh. thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Gray Matter. It's been uh, just a lovely uh, pleasure to sit down with you and to have this conversation. Oh well, thank you. It's been my this was a lot of fun. It's always fun talking to you. 